This episode is brought to you by B2G Global Strategies, for whom I proudly serve as CEO. B2G is an international security and investigations firm whose clients include some of the leading individuals and companies around the world. Our services include forensic accounting, anti-money laundering, cyber investigations, due diligence investigations, and security and threat assessments. You can learn more at b2gstrategies.com. For those unfamiliar with the McDonald case, what I am about to tell you will be surprising, perhaps even shocking. For those familiar with the case, I expect a response more along the lines of, what on earth took you so long? I'm Matthew Craig Kelly. Welcome back to The Looking Glass. And the wheel of destiny has turned. The survival of peace and freedom will be determined by whether the American people have the moral standard. <laughs> Five, Five, four. The great four, silent three, majority. Castle. Drive. <laughs> Dustin Morgan composed the music and sound design for this episode. Our cast this episode features Joshua Hensley as Colonel Warren Rock, Shano Alexander as Specialist Kenneth Micah, Stephen Kavner as Bernard Siegel, Randall Dudley as Captain Clifford Somers, Michael Hensley as Captain Hammond Beale, David Noel as Wade Smith, Stephen Klein as Judge Franklin Dupree, Stephen Bolden as Detective Prince Beasley, Matt Sharp as William Posey, and Megan Heller as Helena Stokely. We would again like to thank Shoshana Pearson for connecting us with several of these brilliant actors. You can follow us on Facebook at The Looking Glass True Crime Podcast and on Instagram at the Looking Glass underscore podcast. We will be posting season one related documents, photographs, and short essays regularly at both of these accounts. If you enjoy the podcast, please tell your friends. We appreciate your support. The name Kenneth Micah came up earlier in the podcast, the attentive listener may remember. Micah was one of the MPs who arrived at the McDonald's residence on the morning of February 17, 1970, and discovered the slaughter there. You may remember that he knelt over Jeffrey McDonald, who was lying next to his wife, and asked him, what happened here? At the Article 32 hearing, Micah explained what occurred next. Colonel Rock. Can you recall, or at least indicate to us, what part in the chronology of these events that you participated in. Did that discussion take place? Right, sir. I believe it was right after I gave him mouth to mouth the first time. I asked him, sir, what happened? And that was it. And what did Captain McDonald say, if anything, about what had happened? Well, sir, he was still incoherent and he was sort of off on a tangent mumbling about, check my wife, check my kids. Why did they do this to me? But I managed. I asked him. I said, who did it? And finally he said, there were four of them. And I sort of got him to calm down a little bit. How did you get him calmed down? What did you do? Well, sir, I don't know exactly what I did. I just... You just... talked to him. I was just trying to keep him down, trying to keep him from getting up, and trying to reassure him that they were taking care of his kids. Now, when he mentioned that there were four of them, did you ask him, uh, did he give you any information about those four? Yes, sir. And did Captain McDonald manage to give you some facts or details about the persons? Yes, sir. Uh, Could you tell the investigating officer what it was Captain McDonald told you at the time? Yes, sir. As far as order goes, I don't know because it was just a series of unconnected things that Captain McDonald told me. I managed to get that there were four of them. One blonde female with a big hat, and she had a candle. She kept saying, acid is groovy, killed the pigs, hit him again. I asked him, I said, well, I tried to find out what the others looked like. He said, three men and one woman, one Negro. He said, I think I hit them, I think I scratched them. And then again, he would be off on a tangent. Asking about his wife and children. Yes, asking about his wife and children, asking, why did they do this? Were you able to get any other 
additional descriptive facts from uh, other than the ones that you have now told us? No, sir. Just that there were four persons, one female blonde with a big hat carrying a candle, and also mentioning something about muddy boots. Muddy boots. Yes, sir. Now, are you saying that he was indicating, in a fashion of speaking, that one of these persons was wearing muddy boots? Yes, sir. And a female. Did he give any description of the type of hat she was wearing to you at that time? I believe he described it as a floppy hat. And did he indicate anything more about the candle that she was carrying, whether it was lit or not? No, sir, not that I remember. As it turned out, Micah had, at the request of his superiors, omitted a key detail from his Article 32 testimony. And this omission haunted Micah, to the point that he felt he had to make it right. In defiance of his superiors, Micah therefore approached McDonald's defense team to tell them that, en route to the crime scene on the morning of the murders, he had seen a woman matching McDonald's description of his female assailant. With Micah's belated revelation now in hand, Bernard Siegel put the young MP back on the stand. So aside from the existence of the various houses and buildings, did you see any people between the period of time when you received the radio message and when you arrived at 544 Castle Drive? Yes, sir. Would you tell the investigating officer approximately what location you observed the person? Sir, I observed the person on the corner of Honeycutt Road in North Lucas. And when did you observe that person in regard to the radio message that you received? We observed the person as we were responding to the message. It was after we received the message. And you were on your way to 544 Castle Drive? Yes, sir. What sex was this person that you observed? Female. Can you describe to the investigating officer the appearance of that female? Including any clothing that she may have had on that you recall? Yes, sir. She appeared to be wearing a type of raincoat, dark color, which came to just above her knees. She was also wearing a wide-brimmed hat. The details were uncanny. Recall McDonald's description in his April 1970 interview with the CID of the woman in the floppy hat. I saw the top of some boots, and I thought I saw knees as I was falling. Siegel continued. She was a member of the Caucasian race? Yes. Did you have occasion to note anything about her hair? What I could see, I really didn't pay much attention to at the time, but it appeared to be approximately shoulder length. Do you recall what kind of footgear she may have had on? No, sir, I don't. What was this female doing? She was just standing in the corner. Was there anything about her standing on the corner at the time that caused you to be attracted to look at her or be aware of her being there? Object. It calls for conclusion. This witness has already been identified by the government to be assigned to patrol this area. Seems to me that any patrolman can testify as to whether it is usual or unusual to see a person at the time of night that is involved in that area. It doesn't necessarily mean that the investigating officer can give any weight to it, but he ought to know whether the, at least the patrol officer thinks this is something common or uncommon in their experience in that area. Then the question should have been phrased that way. That's not the way it was phrased. The objection is sustained. I think you can rephrase your question, Mr. Siegel, and get the results. Specialist Micah. Have you had occasion to patrol this particular area prior to February 17th, 1970? Yes, sir. How often have you been through there on patrol? I'd say at least 15 or 20 times. And have you had occasion to be in this area on patrol in the early morning hours? Yes, sir. You often observe females standing on the corner of the street at that time of the night in that particular area? Object, unless he wants to define often. The witness can describe it, sir. If he's allowed to answer the question, you will find out. The witness has already indicated the basis of his experience, and you will then find out, has he ever seen anyone there before? The objection is overruled. 
What is your answer, Mr. Micah? No, sir. It is not usual. Have you ever seen, in your experience, a young female standing on the corner at the approximate time of day while you were patrolling the area? Objection to the word young. The objection is overruled, Counselor. Yes, sir. I would say... I would say I have. Would you say you've seen such a thing happen on more than one or two occasions? No, sir. It's not very common. By the way, if you have not already done so, would you indicate to us approximately what age you believe the female to be that you observed standing there? Well, sir, I can't say for certain. I don't think she was an older lady. Did she appear to be more than 30 years of age? Less than 30, I would say. When McDonald mentioned the woman in the floppy hat to Micah, Micah immediately thought of the woman with the wide-brimmed hat he had seen standing on the corner of Honeycutt and North Lucas, a half-mile from 544 Castle Drive, only minutes earlier. Specialist Micah, when Captain McDonald described to you the female person who took part, who was part of the group that assaulted him, his wife, and children. Did you make any connection between his statement or think there was any connection between his statement and the female you observed on the highway? Yes, sir. And what, of anything, did you do as the result of fitting those two pieces of information together? Well, sir, I turned around and Lieutenant Park and a few other MPs were behind me. I told Lieutenant Park at the time that I'd seen a female standing on the corner and for them to send a patrol down to see if he could find her. Did Lieutenant Park indicate any response to the statement you made to him about the female you had seen? Well, sir, I didn't pay too much attention to what he did, but he was looking right at me when I told him. I know he heard it. Lieutenant Polk, during his testimony, denied hearing Micah's description of the woman. In any case, nobody went looking for her. Micah, it should be remembered, was under pressure during his testimony. Apart from easing his conscience, he was doing himself no favors and making himself no friends by testifying as he did. He did not know Jeffrey MacDonald. He did know his superiors, who had made it clear to him that he was not to volunteer any information about the woman he had seen. When Captain Somers got around to cross-examining Micah, his hostility towards the MP was palpable. These facts, along with Micah's abiding belief that Jeffrey MacDonald was guilty, are worth bearing in mind when we consider something Micah would, 28 years later, tell the A&E show American Justice during an episode titled Green Beret Murder Mystery. He never saw a woman alone at 3.30 in the morning. That was very unusual. And to find a woman standing in the middle of an intersection in a housing area was just totally unheard of. It never happened. I'd like to reread that for you. You never saw a woman alone at 3.30 in the morning. That was very unusual. And to find a woman standing in the middle of an intersection in a housing area was just totally unheard of. It never happened. It is worth pointing out that this claim differs slightly from the one Micah made during the Article 32, when he told Siegel that while it was unusual to see a woman standing on a street corner in that area at that time of the night, it was not totally unheard of. But Micah also told Siegel that when he saw the woman on the corner of Honeycutt and North Lucas, he commented to his partner, what the heck is she doing standing here at this time of the morning? The nearest thing to the woman were a gas station and commissary, but both were closed at that hour. It appears that we can say, conservatively, that spotting a woman in that area in the wee hours of the morning was uncommon. It was also raining that night, and not a weekend, which would presumably render this sight even more unusual. What, then, are we to make of the fact that not one, but two women were out and about in this residential area in the wee hours of this rainy weekday morning? Recall the testimony of Winnie and Edwin Casper, that they heard a woman going by their window in the early morning hours of February 17th. What were the chances of that occurring at roughly the same time that another woman was standing on a nearby street corner? They would certainly appear to be diminishingly small. For that reason, I submit that the reasonable conclusion is that these weren't two women, but rather one. One woman, seen wearing a wide-brimmed hat over her long hair, 
and heard in the company of male companions only 500 feet from and heading in the direction of 544 Castle Drive. Near the beginning of Fatal Vision, Joe McGinnis writes of the atmosphere that night in February 1970. At least half a dozen times, the two-man patrol had driven past 544 Castle Drive and had neither seen nor heard anything out of the ordinary. On a Monday night in February, the combination of cold and rain, apparently, was enough to keep the streets almost deserted. Almost. But three different witnesses, all of them credible, did see or hear something out of the ordinary, and their descriptions matched Jeffrey McDonald's, a woman with long hair and a wide-brimmed hat, in the company of men. What were the chances? That is the question. By now, the listener already familiar with the McDonald case is surely crying out, but what about Helena Stokely? I have left Helena to the side all this time because I regard her as a highly problematic and potentially unhelpful element of the case. Nevertheless, because she features in nearly all accounts of the McDonald murders, I will deal with her here. It is worth noting at the start that Kenneth Micah is on the record stating that the woman he saw on Honeycutt in North Lucas was not Helena Stokely. Could he be mistaken? Sure. But Micah has been circumspect about what he saw that night, and consistently so from his testimony at the Article 32 up to the present. So it is, at a minimum, interesting that he does not throw his hands up at the possibility that the woman in the wide-brimmed hat was Helena Stokely, but rather states unequivocally that it wasn't her. Be that as it may, it must be acknowledged that Stokely emerged as a person of interest in the murders almost immediately. Stokely was 17 years old in February 1970, and was well ensconced in Fayetteville's counterculture. She was a heavy drug user, but managed to stay mostly on the right side of the law by serving as an informant for the Fayetteville police. Her handler was one Prince Everett Beasley, a Fayetteville police detective and member of the city's interagency narcotics squad, which also included members of the Army CID, as Fayetteville's drug problem was not restricted by any means to the civilian population, but had bled heavily into the military population on Fort Bragg itself. Helena's father, incidentally, was a retired army colonel. According to the sworn testimony he gave at McDonald's 1979 trial, Detective Beasley first suspected Helena's involvement in the murders when he heard the descriptions of McDonald's alleged assailants, which matched those of Stokely and some of her acquaintances. Stokely, Beasley testified, often wore a blonde wig and floppy hat, as well as boots. And among her friends was a black male who wore an army jacket with E6 sergeant stripes, just like McDonald had described. Beasley also detailed how Helena gave him her floppy hat and blonde wig a few days after the crime, but ultimately reclaimed them and eventually, she said, burned them. Not long after the murders, she moved to Nashville. Beasley remained in touch with her, though. She would occasionally write him letters. At the 1979 trial, one of McDonald's attorneys, the North Carolina native Wade Smith, asked Beasley about Helena's fondness for the term pig, the word someone had written in blood on the headboard of Jeffrey and Colette McDonald's bed, and the word McDonald claimed his female assailant had uttered repeatedly, acid is groovy, kill the pigs. Wade Smith. When she would write you letters, Mr. Beasley, would she ever use the word pig? Judge Dupree. Do you have the letters that she wrote you? Detective Prince Beasley. Uh, Your Honor, I had the letters. I say, have you got them with you? I don't have them now, no, sir. Go ahead. Do you ever recall that she used the word pig? Uh, that was one of Helena's favorite words, was pig. All of this sounds like solid evidence of Stokely's implication in the crime, an impression powerfully reinforced by Beasley's 1979 testimony regarding the conversation he had with Stokely on February 18, 1970, one day after the murders. All right, Mr. Beasley, at this time, it would be the 18th of February? Yes, I believe it would. All right. Well, go ahead. What happened? Um, I, I was driving an unmarked car, and I was dressed in uh, dungarees and a leather jacket. I walked up behind the car, and I called her to me, and as I called her, she came towards me, and the other subjects in the car also came towards me. 
And uh, she turned and turned around and told them it would be all right to sit down. So I took her to my car and I asked her had she heard about this incident at Fort Bragg. She said she had, and I said, well, Helena, according to the information we got, you and these people you're with fit the description that was given out. I said, now I'm gonna ask you straight out. I know you know me. I wanna ask you to tell me the truth. And, uh, and she backed off and hung her head, and she says, um, in my mind, it seems I saw this thing happen. But she says, I was heavy on mescaline, and she would not commit herself any further. Set to the side for the moment, Stokely's supposed implication that she saw, and was thus present for, the murder of the MacDonald family. If she was claiming not to know where she was on the night of the murders, only 24 hours after they occurred, this fact alone would constitute persuasive evidence of her involvement in the crime. Did anyone else in North Carolina not know on February 18th where they had been on February 17th? The problem, however, is that we have an earlier Beasley statement regarding the events of February 18th, 1970, and it contradicts his 1979 testimony. In March 1971, Beasley was in Nashville with a CID agent, attempting to induce Stokely to cooperate with the CID's reinvestigation into the murders. He interviewed Stokely and, in his notes from the interview, mentioned his February 18, 1970 conversation with her. And uh, on the night of the McDonald incident, I picked up Helena Stokely for questioning in reference to this, and I talked with her in reference to the case. And she was in a joyful mood and joked about her ice pick. I then told her that this was a serious situation and to act that way, well... And at this time, she did not state to me that she could not remember what happened on that night, and uh, I don't believe the question came up. And she told me of several locations in the Fayetteville area that persons fitting the descriptions of the suspect lived. And um, these places were raided, and several of the suspects were picked up and questioned, and um, some of the most likely ones were turned over to the FBI for further investigation. Some students of the McDonald case have seized on that ice pick reference as yet more evidence of Stokely's guilt. But note the more glaring fact about this Beasley statement, made not a decade, but only a year after the events of 1970. Stokely did not tell him she could not remember where she was on the evening of February 17th. In fact, the topic never came up. Wait, the topic of where Stokely had been the prior night never came up? Beasley's entire 1979 account about his activities on February 18th was premised on his hearing the description of the intruders, thinking that they sounded like Helena and her friends, and then staking out Helena's house until she returned so that he could quiz her on her whereabouts on the previous evening. How are we to reconcile any of that with the disclosure that Beasley, when he finally got a hold of Helena, neglected to ask her where she'd been the previous night? It appears from Beasley's 1971 statement that, in reality, he had gone to talk to Helena on the night of the 18th, not because he suspected her involvement in the murders, but rather because he thought, given her familiarity with the local drug scene, she might be able to point him in the direction of the killers. As with the government's psychiatric and forensic witnesses in 1974 and 75, and again in 1979, Beasley's 1979 testimony hewed suspiciously close to one side's version of events. The fact that his earliest recorded statement on the Stokely matter flatly contradicted his later testimony on such a critical detail suggests that, as so often happens with humans, Beasley's memories were being reshaped according to a narrative he had come to accept as true. With that said, Beasley was not the only person who suspected that Stokely was involved in the murders. In fact, according to Franz Grebner, the CID's chief investigator, whom you may remember from earlier episodes, the CID spoke to Helena within days of the murder. It was also later disclosed, in an army rebuttal of McDonald's defense team's allegations of CID misconduct, that Stokely had been interviewed early in the investigation by the FBI. Not as a suspect, the report was quick to note, but because of her knowledge of the local hippie community. As noted, 
Had Stokely told Detective Beasley on February 18th that she didn't know where she was the previous night, the night of the murders, it would be powerful proof of her involvement. We have no evidence that she did tell him that. We do have evidence that Stokely was telling people she did not have an alibi for that night and doing so within days of the murders. She told a local Fayetteville newspaper, for example, the reason they're hassling me is I don't have an alibi. The night it happened, nobody saw me. Months later, when William Ivory interviewed her, she couldn't, or wouldn't, say where she'd been between midnight and 4 a.m. on the morning of February 17th. Note her words to the newspaper, though. Nobody saw me. This is a different claim. Not that Helena couldn't account for her whereabouts that night, but that she couldn't enlist anyone to verify them. Also, note that Stokely was talking to a newspaper and saying, on the record, that she had no alibi for the night of the murders. Who does that? Presumably not someone actually involved in the murders, but someone seeking attention? All things being equal, and more on that shortly, this seems like a fair conclusion. McGinnis relates that when the CID interviewed two of Helena's roommates, one of them said that Stokely had enjoyed being mentioned in newspaper stories about the killings. You'd think that the last thing someone involved in the murders, whose freedom and very life would thereby be at risk, would enjoy, was seeing their name in the papers. Beasley himself, in that March 1971 written statement, concluded, It is my conviction that Helena is involved in the McDonald case, or at least she thinks she is, or that she is doing this just to get all the attention she possibly can. With all that said, we still have a woman who reportedly had boots, a blonde wig, and a floppy hat, and she had no alibi for the night of the murders, and she was among the earliest persons of interest in them, to the extent that she was interviewed by the police, and the CID, and the FBI. In fact, when Stokely's name came up during the Article 32 proceedings, William Ivory himself urged Colonel Rock to take every precaution to ensure that it did not become publicly known that Stokely was being discussed. If it did, Ivory emphasized, Stokely would, most assuredly, be a dead woman. When pressed on this remarkable claim by both Rock and Siegel, Ivory indicated that the CID was aware of the individuals with whom Stokely associated and believed many of them to be homicidal. So, a woman with boots, a blonde wig, and a floppy hat, no alibi, and homicidal friends who, as we will shortly see, were a mix of hippies and disaffected soldiers. And one more consideration. Who is more likely to wind up on a random street corner at 3.45 on a rainy Tuesday morning? A straight person, the kind who has to go to work in a few hours, or a drug addict? There is a particularly powerful passage in Errol Morris's A Wilderness of Error, wherein he writes, Think about it this way. If Jeffrey McDonald was the killer then it was a coincidence that his description of the woman with a floppy hat was similar to Ken Micah's description of the woman with a wide-brimmed hat on Honeycutt Road. It could be. And it was a coincidence that Prince Beasley had seen a group of hippies answering to the description of the intruders, including Helena Stokely, hours before the murders in Fayetteville. A coincidence? Why not? That Helena Stokely, according to Beasley, was wearing a blonde wig and white boots? Okay. That multiple witnesses recall seeing a group like the one McDonald described, high on drugs, at a Dunkin' Donuts between Fayetteville and Fort Bragg? That they left around two in the morning? A coincidence? That William Posey, who lived nearby, saw Stokely arrive home early that morning? That Helena Stokely, Beasley's drug informant, started confessing to the murders and continued confessing to the murders over the next 13 years? A coincidence? That Greg Mitchell, Stokely's boyfriend, also confessed to the murders? A coincidence? At what point does a coincidence become something more than a coincidence? This passage is the heart of Morris's argument. I accept its logic, and have obviously made a similar argument regarding the woman on Honeycutt and North Lucas. But there is a problem here. Some of what makes Morris's list of curious coincidences is dubious. For example, did Detective Beasley see Helena in her boots, wig, and hat, and with a group of people matching the intruder's description, only hours before the murders? 
not according to any contemporaneous source. Beasley would later claim to have seen such things. We heard his 1979 testimony about his February 18, 1970 questioning of Helena and saw that his account of a decade earlier contradicted this testimony. In the journalist Christopher Olgiati's 1989 documentary film, False Witness, the narrator states, As soon as Detective Beasley heard MacDonald's story, he was sure he knew who the killers were. He'd seen his informant, Helena Stokely, identically dressed, in long, shiny boots and a blonde wig earlier that night. As usual, her group had included a black man with the stripes of an E6 sergeant on his jacket. But nothing on the record can substantiate these claims. We have no evidence of Beasley saying anything of the sort in 1970 or even 1971. What about the multiple witnesses who saw a group matching McDonald's description at a Dunkin' Donuts between Fayetteville and Fort Bragg? This claim comes from the statements of Frankie Bushy, given to the private investigator Ted Gunderson in 1980, ten years after the crime, and Marion Campbell, given to the private investigator Raymond Shedlick in 1983, 13 years after the crime. To give a sense of the quality of these statements, consider Bushy's claim about the woman in a floppy hat she supposedly saw. The things I remember were her hat, blonde stringy hair, straight, and slender face. I remember her well because I looked directly into her face as she walked past my booth. I have been shown a 1970 photograph of Helena Stokely, and if you put a blonde wig on her, she would be identical with the white female I saw at Dunkin' Donuts that night. Ms. Bushy could state with confidence that a woman she had seen walk by her table at a Dunkin' Donuts a decade earlier was identical with the woman shown to her in a photograph if you added a wig? This seems implausible. William Posey What about William Posey, Helena Stokely's neighbor, who reportedly saw her arrive home early on the morning of February 17th? Posey is someone we must look at carefully. He originally approached McDonald's defense team in August 1970, while the Article 32 was in progress. At the time of the murders, Posey lived directly across from Stokely. His residence was only 15 or 20 feet from hers, he estimated. He told McDonald's defense team several things of interest. First, he knew Helena, whom he called Helen, to wear boots, a blonde wig, and a floppy hat. Second, he knew that she had a friend who was a black male, and whose hippie stylings Posey found really wild for a colored guy. Third, he knew that she was involved in one of the big LSD rings in Fayetteville and had been busted in that connection, but that the majority of her friends were military, in the army. Fourth and most important, Posey had seen Stokely on the morning of February 17th. He didn't know the precise time, but he estimated it was between 3.45 and 4.30 a.m. As he was getting out of bed to go to the restroom, he heard a car pull loudly into the driveway separating his and Stokely's buildings. Its occupants were laughing and carrying on. Curious, Posey walked to his front door to investigate. He spied the car, a Mustang, and he noticed Helena Stokely exiting the vehicle and briskly making her way inside, where two other women were painting designs on the walls. Posey could see them, too. Stokely wasn't wearing her wig or hat. The scene made an impression on Posey, both because it was unusual and because when he learned of the murders at Fort Bragg later that morning and heard talk of hippie intruders, he thought of Helena and the car of giggling people. He also found it interesting that Stokely, who often wore her floppy hat, never donned it again after that morning. Posey claimed he spoke to Helena about two weeks after the murders, at which time she told him that she could not remember where she was on that night and that law enforcement had been bothering her, the same thing she told a local newspaper, in an article that Posey acknowledged having read. Posey responded that he could be her alibi, since he had seen her that morning, along with her painting roommates. Stokely seemed to become uncomfortable at that point and changed the subject. And a few days later, she moved away. As Beasley would testify in 1979, Posey, too, said that Helena called cops pigs, and also observed that hippies call anyone in the establishment a pig. Incidentally, we have independent evidence that Helena used this word. In a 1970 letter to her friend Kathy Smith, she used it repeatedly to refer to police officers. 
When asked by Captain Somers during the Article 32 why he had waited until August to tell someone about what he'd seen on the 17th of February, Posey stated that he was concerned for his and his wife's safety, especially if Stokely was involved in the murders and learned that he had spoken to the authorities. Just days before his testimony, Posey claimed to have spoken with Helena again, this time at the Village Shop, one of the popular hangouts in the Haymount district of Fayetteville, where hippies were known to congregate en masse and where both Posey and Stokely had lived when they were neighbors. You may remember from episode two that one of the Haymount district's main drags, Hay Street, was ultimately raised by local authorities as part of an anti-crime initiative. Posey had gone looking for Helena on this night. When he found her, he asked her outright if she was involved in the murders. She replied that she didn't know if she was, but didn't think that she could kill anyone. Confusingly, Helena then stated that she and her boyfriend can't get married until we go out and kill some more people. She was also, Posey claimed, curious to know his new address, and asked him for it several times. As he was leaving, she asked again. He gave her a phony address, and she jokingly replied, Well, tell your wife to lock the doors, because we'll be over to see you. On cross-examination at the Article 32, Captain Somers quizzed Posey, both about his claims to be afraid and the fact that McDonald's defense team had offered a $5,000 reward to anyone providing information leading to the capture of the killers. Somers. Now, didn't you also tell me on my cross-examination that Mr. Eisman mentioned this reward to you? Yes, sir. And I understand that you're frightened about the situation and about giving information and becoming personally involved or your wife is at any rate, is that correct? Yes, sir. And if that's the case, why did you personally go out and look for this girl and expose yourself to more danger? Because they needed to know the name of the girl. Who was they? Mr. Eisman and Mr. Siegel. And because they wanted to know the name of the girl, you personally went out and exposed yourself to this danger and talked to her. That's correct? Well, see, I, I, didn't, I didn't think that she would be there because she'd been gone so long. So I figured I knew the people she associated with, you know, and, and they knew me, and, and like I knew they used drugs and pushed drugs, and I never ratted on them, so they didn't have no reason to, you know, think that I was there trying to gather information. A little later, Somers pressed the point. Despite this danger that you're talking about, you took it on yourself, once you saw this girl, to go and speak to her and interrogate her about the McDonald case. Is that correct? See, I didn't, uh, I, I didn't, I didn't just walk up to her and start talking to her about the McDonald case. I understand that, but you did, in fact, interrogate her about the McDonald case, didn't you? Well, y- you know, yes. It is perhaps worth noting at this point that Posey had a criminal record. He'd broken into a school in 1967, during a summer stint in Berlin, Germany, and had multiple arrests in 1968 for drunken disorderly conduct. None of this means he couldn't have been telling the truth at the Article 32, but it does raise what you might call character questions, particularly in light of Posey's story, which, as Somers implied, didn't quite add up. It is also possible, of course, that Posey did have safety concerns, but considered the possibility of making $5,000 worth the risk. Adjusting for inflation, $5,000 in 1970 was close to $35,000 today, a small fortune for a man who worked odd jobs. There were a few other interesting moments in Posey's testimony at the Article 32. For instance, Colonel Rock at one point asked Posey, Did you ever see any males at Stokely's apartment wearing parts of a military uniform? Well, not, you know, uh, I'd seen them, uh, a lot of them in their uniforms, complete uniforms. Complete uniforms? Yeah, but they were these Confederate, you know, jackets. And in fact, I've seen one dressed completely in a Confederate uniform one day. But the color guy, he used to wear a Confederate jacket all the time. It is interesting, in particular, that this observation only emerged during Colonel Rock's brief questioning of Posey, not on Bernie Siegel's direct examination of him. That is, it may not have come out at all, since Siegel didn't ask the question himself and had no idea that Colonel Rock would ask it. We also don't know how familiar Posey was with military uniforms. He had served in the military, on Fort Bragg in fact, and his father was, as McGinnis notes, a career army man, 
Some Confederate jackets did feature sergeant stripes, like those MacDonald claimed to have seen on the sleeve of his black assailant. Then again, the description of MacDonald's assailants, including the black man with the E6 sergeant stripes, was public knowledge. Posey could have picked it up from the papers. There are other tantalizing details. In March 1971, as part of the CID's reinvestigation of the murders, investigator Richard Mahone interviewed Posey in Fayetteville. Posey had, by then, moved with his wife back to Alabama because, as he told Mahone, it wasn't safe for us to live in Fayetteville after I testified about Helen at Captain McDonald's hearing. Posey reiterated his story about Helena and the Mustang and so forth. His statement was generally consistent with his Article 32 testimony, but some new details emerged. For example, Posey claimed that when he spoke to Helena that night at the village shop in the Haymount district, she said that somebody, some guy, but I don't recall if she mentioned a name or not, had ridden a child's hobby horse in the hallway of Captain McDonald's house. And there was more. She said that some part of the hobby horse had gotten broken. She sometimes talked like she'd really been at Captain McDonald's house. Other times, she acted like she hadn't. She really confused me. While I was talking to her, I mentioned that the newspapers had said that an MP had seen a girl on a street corner about two blocks from McDonald's house on the morning of the murders. Helen said that was true, and I remember that she mentioned the name of the street that the girl had been on. I don't know the name of the street now but I know it wasn't too far from McDonald's house because Mr. Eisman, Captain McDonald's lawyer, told me that later. It is obviously noteworthy that Posey had neglected to mention several of these details during his testimony seven months earlier, particularly the bit about Stokely insinuating that she had been in the McDonald's home and that somebody had ridden a broken hobby horse. In June 1971, Posey submitted to a polygraph examination in connection with his Article 32 testimony and subsequent statement to the CID. The results indicated deception on key claims, and Posey subsequently admitted to certain untruths. He had stated, for example, that his residence was broken into shortly after his Article 32 testimony, possibly in connection with his testimony and at the behest of Helena Stokely. This was untrue, he now admitted. More to the point, he claimed that elements of his story about the morning of the 17th were inaccurate. Namely, he was not certain it had been the morning of the 17th when he'd seen Stokely, and he was not sure that the car that had screeched into the driveway was a Mustang, and he had not actually seen Stokely exit the car, but had rather only seen her walking away from the car and toward the apartment. It appears that Posey was dramatizing his role in the investigation a bit by suggesting he had fled Fayetteville under threat, so important had his testimony been. On the other hand, he retracted nothing critical about his testimony regarding seeing Stokely, other than his claim about the date he had seen her. But he also specified that he had formed the opinion that he had seen her on February 17th about a week after that date, which suggests that he may well have been right, even if he could not be certain. Stokely herself claimed to have returned home at around the time Posey had seen her, and said also that she had been in a blue Mustang. And there were two other critical details. Posey claimed, as you will remember, to have seen Helena's roommate's painting. This is multiply attested. Stokely herself, in a private letter to her friend Kathy Smith, wrote regarding the night of February 16th and 17th, 1970. I know I did in that night and borrowed somebody's blue Mustang. All I remember is I took off and came back about 4.30 and found you and Diane painting those things all over the apartment. So they were painting in the apartment. Posey was telling the truth. The painting was also attested to by Kathy Smith herself, whom the CID interviewed in May 1971 as part of their reinvestigation into the murders. Smith told investigators that she returned to the apartment she shared with Stokely and several others at around 3.30 a.m. on February 17th. When we got back, Diane Hedden and Don Harris were there painting the apartment. About one hour later, Helena and Greg Mitchell arrived. This bolsters Posey's credibility and makes it fair to assume that he was telling the truth about what he saw that morning and was right about the date. It was the morning of the 17th, and Helena even if Posey did not actually see her exit the vehicle, had exited it and, in all likelihood, walked briskly back into her apartment. 
Posey could not see the vehicle's other occupants, but he could tell by their laughing voices that there was more than one and that they were men, a woman and a few men laughing in the early morning hours of February 17th. One cannot help but note the parallel between this description and that offered by the Caspers at the Article 32 regarding the voices outside their window that morning. Stokely's apartment at 1106 Clark Street was about 10 miles from 544 Castle Drive, a 20-minute drive. How many groups of giggling men and one woman were out that rainy Tuesday morning between 3.30 and 4.30 a.m.? I wouldn't pretend to know the answer, but the question is still worth asking. I mentioned two critical details from Posey's statements about the night of the murders. The first was the people painting in Stokely's apartment. The second was the hobby horse Posey claimed Stokely had mentioned to him. At this point, it is worth pausing to tell the listener something. Helena Stokely spoke to many people over many years regarding her involvement, or non-involvement, or maybe involvement, in the murders. The inconsistencies between her various accounts are numerous. She named people who were supposedly involved in the crime that could not have been. It goes on and on. Stokely, by herself, is very hard to take seriously. By the early 1980s, she was again in a confessing mood, claiming to have been involved. The interested listener can look up one such confession on YouTube by typing into the search bar, Ted Gunderson interview with Helena Stokely. I tell you this in order to make clear which statements of Helena's I have elected to examine, namely those that are either multiply attested or that, at a minimum, intersect with the statements of more credible third parties, such as Kathy Smith and William Posey. Returning to the latter, Posey claimed in 1971 that Stokely had mentioned a broken hobby horse to him, which she suggested someone had attempted to ride, as it were, in the McDonald's residence on the night of the murders. Stokely herself, who we have no reason to believe knew about Posey's 1971 interview with the CID, in which he mentioned the hobby horse, said something similar when she testified at the 1979 trial, where she was, to the defense's dismay, not in a confessing mood. The Hobby Horse As we noted in Episode 6, McDonald's defense was fatally compromised by the hostility of the judge who presided over the case, Franklin Dupree, who forbid exculpatory psychological testimony, permitted specious forensic testimony, and made his disdain for McDonald's lead defense attorney crystal clear to all in attendance, including, critically, the jurors. But it was actually worse than all that. Siegel had lined up seven different witnesses to testify that Helena Stokely had confessed her participation in the murders to them. So while Helena herself turned hostile witness on the stand, the testimony of these witnesses would likely have been devastating to the prosecution. It would almost certainly have been sufficient to generate a reasonable doubt about McDonald's guilt, for one, if not a majority, of the twelve jurors. But the jurors never heard these witnesses. Dupree ruled their testimony inadmissible. Stokely herself did testify in the presence of the jury, but proved largely useless, if not harmful, to the defense, because she denied involvement in the murders. This was an unwelcome surprise to Bernie Siegel, who had sat with Helena and Jean Zalou, one of the persons to whom she had confessed, only the day before. Siegel. Let me hand the group of photos back to you again, Miss Stokely. Do you recall... Just as you are now, sitting on the stand, looking at those photos. Do you recall staring at those photos at some length when Jane Zalou was sitting just about next to you in that room in this building? I mentioned something about the rocking horse. Yes, all right. Will you tell us about that rocking horse? What you recall saying about it? I made some comment about it being broken or something. Does the picture show anything about a broken rocking horse? I can't tell if it is broken or not. It looks like it is. Beg your pardon? It looks like it is broken. But the picture, as Errol Morris observes, does not reveal any broken component on the hobby horse. Nor did the picture of the hobby horse published in the Fayetteville Observer in February 1970, where Helena could, in theory, have learned of the toy's existence. Siegel made the same point in his closing argument in 1979. But wait, was the hobby horse broken? 
The only evidence we have of that comes from an interview Morris himself conducted with Helen Fell, who was a close friend of Jeffrey and Collette's, and who testified at the 1979 trial. During an interview with Morris, the date of which Morris does not specify, but which was several decades after the murders, Fell suddenly volunteered, apropos of nothing, according to Morris, that the rocking horse was indeed broken. Quoting, And the story of that rocking horse... Nobody but nobody knew that rocking horse was broken, and I ended up knowing about it because, inadvertently, I was talking to Jeff the day that it happened, and he said, oh God, I'm going to have to listen to Mildred, she got the kids a rocking horse, and she got it at probably a yard sale, and that was the day that the thing was broken, and no one ever went around advertising that the kids had a broken hobby horse, or whatever you want to call it, but Helena Stokely knew it, and there's only one way she knew it, she was there. This is a very strange statement. On the one hand, Fell made it decades after the fact, which would, all things being equal, normally render it dubious from a historical perspective. But are all things equal in this instance? For one, Fell volunteered the information unprompted, which is to say she was not under any sort of conversational pressure to say anything in particular about a hobby horse. Morris was, in fact, preoccupied with the hobby horse, but he never mentioned this to Fell. Fell clearly knew that Stokely had mentioned the broken hobby horse, which is why she said anything about it at all, and Stokely had only mentioned the hobby horse publicly at the trial. Then again, if Fell knew about the broken hobby horse back in 1979 and could testify to the fact that MacDonald had told her about it all the way back in 1969-70, why didn't she make this known to the defense and then take the stand to get this critical fact into the court record? She believed, and believes, in MacDonald's innocence, after all, and her testimony regarding the broken hobby horse would certainly have rendered an otherwise obscure detail of Stokely's testimony much more salient for the jurors. According to a 2018 Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals rejection of one of MacDonald's many appeals, crime scene photos of the hobby horse reveal that it was not, in fact, broken. And while I am unable to locate those photos, I am also unable to locate any evidence lists from the original crime scene investigation that even refer to the hobby horse, much less to its being broken. At the most general level, it may be useful to consider how much weight to give Stokely's hobby horse statement in light of her many statements over the years. On that score, we must acknowledge that Stokely made an abundance of untrue statements, either because she was confused or lying. Stokely claimed that people were in the McDonald home that were incarcerated at the time. She claimed in one confession that she and the other assailants woke McDonald up and had a long conversation with him before attacking him, a scenario flatly contradicted by McDonald's own story. Regarding the hobby horse, she claimed the wheels were broken. It had no wheels. In a word, Stokely lacks credibility. In light of that, it is difficult to credit her claim regarding the broken hobby horse, especially when we have no contemporaneous evidence that it was broken. This observation must be folded into a larger one. As with any purported witness to a crime, the most reliable means of verifying their presence at the crime scene is to determine whether they are in possession of information that only investigators know, information never disclosed to the press or media, and thereby to the public. However crazy Stokely appeared, if she made statements regarding the crime scene at 544 Castle Drive that contained information only known to investigators, we would have to take her seriously, the more so, the more such statements she made. The hobby horse is the closest thing we have to such information. If a spring on the horse was broken, and if that fact was known only to investigators, it would certainly be worth noting that Stokely said as much. Alas, as we have already noted, we have no reason to believe this was a fact, much less one known only to investigators. Stokely showed no inside knowledge of the events of February 17, 1970. Greg Mitchell The same is true of Stokely's boyfriend, Greg Mitchell, whose supposed confession to the murders Morris included on his list of suspicious coincidences. Beginning in the 1980s, more than a decade after the murders, multiple witnesses started claiming that Mitchell confessed to the murders, although he offered no details apart from the motive, which differed depending upon the witness. In one version, Mitchell and the other assailants planned to confront MacDonald because of the way he had treated Mitchell for his heroin addiction, but things spun violently out of control. 
In the other, Mitchell had been part of a heroin pipeline from Indochina to North Carolina, and McDonald had learned of it and begun intercepting the incoming drugs, so Mitchell and company attacked him. It is, of course, conceivable that Mitchell attacked McDonald for something related to heroin and that the story got convoluted in transit. Were that the case, we might count the two stories both mentioning heroin as a strength, rather than counting the discrepancy on the details about the heroin as a liability. Mitchell was Helena Stokely's boyfriend at the time of the murders. He was a 19-year-old, heroin-addicted soldier who had spent time in Vietnam. Perhaps not surprisingly, he was also emotionally troubled. In 1970, Mitchell was living with his mother, Violet, one of whose neighbors the CID interviewed the following year. The neighbor reported being scared of Mitchell, especially after an incident in which he returned home under the influence of something and, according to what Violet herself told the neighbor, kept repeating, We have to go and kill them. We have to kill all the ten-year-olds we can find. Violet, the neighbor recalled, believed that it might have had something to do with killing children in Vietnam. The CID interviewed Mitchell himself in March 1971. Mitchell told the investigators that he was not involved in the McDonald murders, and further that he was not with his then-girlfriend, Helena Stokely, on the night of February 16th and 17th, 1970. When it was suggested to him that Helena had said otherwise, Mitchell replied, I'm almost positive that she wasn't with me on the night of the murders. I think Don Harris and I were together at my house. If I was with her, it would have been at either the Village Shop or the Dunkin' Donuts Shop in Fayetteville. Mitchell then took a polygraph, which he passed. There are a few interesting details here. First, Mitchell acknowledged, effectively, that he may have been with Stokely at a Dunkin' Donuts on the night of the murders. The statements we noted earlier, from Frankie Bushy and Marianne Campbell, made 10 and 13 years after the fact, respectively, cannot be so easily dismissed if we have Mitchell himself volunteering that he and Stokely may have been at Dunkin' Donuts that night. Second, Mitchell's claim not to have been with Stokely on the night of the murders is contradicted by the testimony of Kathy Smith, who told investigators, you may remember, When we got back, Diane Hedden and Don Harris were there painting the apartment. About one hour later, Helena and Greg Mitchell arrived. It may be relevant, in this context, to note one of the falsehoods Stokely's neighbor, William Posey, confessed to having told investigators— namely that he had seen Stokely exit the Blue Mustang in the early morning hours of February 17th and walk briskly into her apartment. Posey later corrected himself. He hadn't actually seen Stokely exit the vehicle. Rather, he had seen her walking away from the vehicle and simply inferred that she had gotten out of it. Perhaps Mitchell also exited the car before Posey got to his front door. And perhaps Mitchell, walking ahead of Stokely, had disappeared into the apartment by the time Posey spotted Stokely. Where had Stokely and Mitchell been? It is hard to say, since neither seemed either to remember or to want anyone else to know. When the CID interviewed Kathy Smith about that night, she told them, The next day, Helena said to me that the police were looking for her to question her about the murders. She was picked up that day and questioned. She told me that she didn't know what to tell them. She didn't have an alibi, and she didn't want to get Greg Mitchell in trouble. She didn't want to tell the police that she had been with Greg that night. She told me that she didn't remember what she had done that night, but she said that while she was with Greg, he had fallen asleep and she had taken someone's car, a Mustang with Illinois license plates. If what Smith reported was accurate and it is worth noting that she was speaking over a year after the events she was describing, then Stokely was, on February 18, 1970, pleading amnesia regarding her whereabouts on February 17, 1970. She was also indicating that she had an unspecified reason for not wanting the police to know she had been with Greg Mitchell, who should have been the alibi she claimed not to have. That is, assuming the two of them were not inside the McDonald's home when the murders occurred. There is more to the Mitchell story. Mitchell, as noted, was a heroin addict, a fact he admitted to the CID in 1971, by which time he claimed to have gotten clean. Indeed, Mitchell had, from June to September 1970, participated in an Army drug rehabilitation program run out of Fort Bragg called Operation Awareness. In a statement given to the private investigator Raymond Shedlick, Mitchell's widow, Mitchell died in 1982, claimed that he was, in fact, back in rehab in Fayetteville in 1971. 
This lends some plausibility to a story told by one Anne Kennedy. Kennedy was a caregiver at and co-founder of a Christian halfway house called the Manor House. She was also interviewed by Shedlick, and she told him that in August 1971, a man came to stay at the Manor House. He said his name was Dave. In keeping with the Christian convictions of the institution, there were occasional prayer meetings at the Manor House. At one of these, Dave, according to Kennedy, began to confess. She continued, He began to confess that he had murdered. He began to confess using drugs. He began to confess all these things that were inside him, and he became very emotional, asking God to forgive him for the things he had done. The next day, Dave disappeared, but he then reappeared, briefly. Kennedy and two Manor House volunteers, Juanita Cisneros and the Reverend Randy Phillips, drove out to a farmhouse that the group was fixing up for future use. As they approached the property, they spotted Dave racing on foot from the back of the building. Dave, along with a second man, according to Phillips, then disappeared into the woods. Kennedy and Cisneros then entered the farmhouse, where they noticed that someone had written, in large red letters on one of the bedroom walls, I killed McDonald's wife and children. On three separate occasions, Shedlick showed each of the three witnesses an array of 25 photographs and asked them if they recognized Dave in any of them. According to Shedlick, all three picked the photograph of Greg Mitchell. Shedlick's interviews with these witnesses took place in 1983, 12 years after the supposed incident at the Manor House. But the fact that all three selected Mitchell out of 25 photographs is unlikely to be chance. Had one of them done so, we might naturally be skeptical of that individual's ability to remember a face they'd only seen on a few occasions a dozen years earlier. But three? There is a little more. In 1984, based on an affidavit that one Noah Bryant Lane had provided to Raymond Shedlick, the FBI interviewed Lane regarding his friendship with Greg Mitchell. Lane met Mitchell in 1972. The two became close, having many conversations over the years. Mitchell, Lane claimed, would sometimes become emotional when he drank. On one such occasion, he told Lane that he had been involved with something terrible while he was in the service, and that, if the authorities ever learned of it, he would be forced to flee the country. Mitchell also claimed to have killed Viet Cong during his time in Vietnam. Lane offered to take a polygraph. Noah Bryant Lane's wife, Norma Lane, also gave the FBI a statement in 1984, in which she claimed that Mitchell had, while drinking, become upset about something he described as too horrible to talk about. She also noted that Mitchell had a tendency to exaggerate things. A month earlier, Norma had told Shedlick, When I read the news story in the Charlotte Observer about the Fort Bragg murders, in which Greg Mitchell's name was mentioned, I realized that what Greg had told my husband and me was that he had taken part in the murders. In 1988, Noah Bryant Lane made a far bolder claim in a second affidavit, one that, if true, indicates that he lied to the FBI four years earlier. Lane stated that Mitchell had actually explicitly confessed to him that he was the one who murdered the McDonald family. But Mitchell had, Lane claimed, asked Lane to keep this information to himself. Lane told the same story to the television show 2020 in 1990. But Mitchell died in 1982. Why would Lane continue keeping this secret into 1984, to the point that he was willing to commit a felony by lying to the FBI about it, much less until 1988? However we might answer that question, both Lanes have reportedly since changed their minds and now believe that Jeffrey McDonald committed the murders, for whatever that is worth. What should we make of all this? Like Stokely, Greg Mitchell gives us no inside information about the McDonald murders. His whereabouts on the night of the murders remain a mystery, as do Stokely's, and we are left with a few dangling pieces, like the story of Dave from the halfway house and the Dunkin' Donuts witnesses. My recommendation is that we put our Mitchell-related information up on the board and highlight it. If this information can be coherently brought together with all of our other information, in a manner that most makes sense, it may prove vital to our conclusions. If not, we have to live with the fact that every historian and criminal investigator knows well. In complex cases, there are always danglers, bits of anomalous information that sit uncomfortably within the broader informational picture. 
but which are insufficient to cause us to fundamentally redraw that picture. This returns us to Errol Morris's central question. At what point does a coincidence become more than a coincidence? Morris's underlying point is, I believe, correct. That is, at some point, when the coincidences number too many, we have to consider that our hypothesis is false. As Vincent Bugliosi once put it, and I'm paraphrasing him here, if a person is not involved in a crime, once in a blue moon there will nevertheless be a piece of evidence implicating that person. And on extremely rare occasions, there may even be two or three such pieces of evidence. But if the pieces of evidence implicating someone in a crime go beyond that small number, it's because the person is guilty. As Morris suggests, there can only be so many coincidences. But what is left of Morris's list of suspicious coincidences? The woman on Honeycutt and North Lucas? Stokely's dubious and consistently inconsistent confessions? Mitchell's possible confession, reported a decade after the fact, William Posey's having seen Stokely arrive home early that morning, and the possibility that Stokely and Mitchell were spotted at a Dunkin' Donuts between Fort Bragg and Fayetteville on the night of the murders. We can add to this list the testimony of the Caspers regarding the voices outside their window. Now, how powerful a string of ostensible coincidences is this? If the evidence against McDonald was negligible, I think these coincidences would be worth considering carefully. And this is fairly obvious. Think about it the other way around. If, for example, McDonald had confessed to the murders, or several of his neighbors had seen him briefly bolt out the back door and throw the weapons into the yard on the night of the murders, these coincidences would mean nothing at all. So what evidence might we put on the table that does point to McDonald? To Bugliosi's point, how many such pieces of evidence are there? As we've seen from earlier episodes, the government did a poor job of making its case against McDonald using psychological and physical evidence. But forget the government for a moment. What can we point to as historians? That's next time, on the season finale of The Looking Glass.